1: I'm Scott Wapner, and you're listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast, the most profitable hour of the trading day. We record this live weekdays at 12 Eastern. Listen in. All right, Sarah, thanks so much. Welcome to the Halftime Report. I'm Scott Wapner, front and center this hour, the final stretch for stocks. After one of the best months in years, now we debate with the investment committee what is likely to happen over the remainder of 23 and beyond. Joining us for the hour today, Shannon Sakosha, Rob Seachin, Steve Weiss and Jim Labenthal are here at Post 9 at the New York Stock Exchange. You heard Sarah just say we're at the highs of the day. Uh, We had the Fed chair speaking today. Market took a little bit of a dip right about then, but it's recovered and recovered quite nicely. So we're green across the board for the majors. Yields slipping down. Look at that. 425, 425, Weiss, the yield on the 10-year. So Powell said exactly what I think we would have expected him to say. Um, You know, maybe the market got unsettled for a second and then realized that it was really nothing new. Premature to say the Fed's sufficiently restrictive. Policy is well into restrictive territory, though he came back and said next. Fed moving carefully. That's been the language that's sort of soothed uh, the market of late. Carefully, patience, those types of words. And the stock market looks pretty good as we start December.
2: Yeah, this is one of those situations where sort of mediocre economic news, if not weakening economic news, is now good news. So you see that in the 10-year now. Uh, The ISM number was a little disappointing. It's in contraction territory, below 50. So the market's keying off on that and believing that's going to be what's going to force the Fed to think about easing sooner than they have been alluding to. And of course, as you mentioned, you got nothing additionally hawkish from Powell. You got the same party line, which has been consistent with most of the, of the Fed speakers this week. So I do believe that I'm actually, uh, I wouldn't say I'm surprised today. I'm surprised there isn't a little bit more of a digestion
1: period well, for last month. We've kind of had that over the last, you the know, last couple of days. four or five days or yeah. so. Ben, yeah. it, it's felt digestive in that, you know, we were kind of quiet. Right. The action was a little muted. But he, even even though just dialing back the massive momentum for last
2: month mm-hmm. is, is digestive period. So I still think we can rally into year end. So and that's sort of how I'm positioned. Next year will be a different story. I'll reassess then. But for now, I think
1: I think it's green lights. Tony Pascarello, Goldman. We, we always you know try and cite his notes when he he puts them out on a on a Friday. Uh, says there's a little more gas in the tank too. Uh, for December, the market's already taken credit, he says, for the good news that's in hand and turn the bars higher. It'll be very difficult to sustain the degree of upside convexity that we've seen of late. Um, so, risk reward today is very different from what it was a month ago. However, I think there's a little more gas left in the tank for December. Seems to make sense. What do you think, Jim?
3: Uh, let me start by saying the sun is shining, and uh, I totally disagree with Steve. Um, I, I don't think that the 10-year is at 425 because uh, the economy is weakening. Uh, certainly, well, actually, the ISM survey today was bad, but you just got to point to the fact that people are employed and they're spending. They're spending in the holiday season, which is where the bulk of spending gets done. Uh, cash flows at corporate America, outside of technology even, are extraordinarily high, which means nobody's going to be laying off anybody anytime soon. The idea that the market is rallying because the ISM survey was weak is, in my opinion, exactly wrong. Uh, this is a condition that we're in in the markets where good news is good news and bad news is bad news. The reason the market's rallying despite the ISM surveys is because we know that consumers have, to date, been traveling and enjoying experiences, but they are now currently shifting to buying again as we get into the holiday season. So I would expect that ISM manufacturing to reflect that as we get into the new year. Um, You look at where corporate profits are, you look at where valuations are outside of technology, and it gives a very strong reason for this rally to broaden uh, and the rest of the market to catch up with where tech is without having tech come down.
2: (laughs) He wasn't listening to what I said. I said, I use that as an example. That's not the only reason for the market rallying. The market's rallying because basically you have Powell saying the same thing. He hasn't gotten more hawkish, just to repeat for Jim's benefit. And you're seasonally in a market in a period where the market's typically strong. And there is no other data. We'll get CPI. We'll get PPI. People are betting. You can see the, the continued downtrend in that. So that will give it to you. When we get to next year and we start seeing earnings again, we can't go by a Christmas period where there's Spending. We still see the consumer stretch. That's undeniable. We hear from all the, co- the uh, credit card companies that they're increasing their reserves. We see it. We see it in household balance sheets. We see it everywhere. So the consumer stretch. If they spend at Christmas, that's fine. They should. And Christmas spending will be higher. The market but is that's rallying a, but that's because inflation not the, is coming down. But that's not the, that simple. Well, that, and that's why bonds are coming down also. Rates, not bonds themselves. They're going up. So, so look. So I think it's all set for a rally to the year end, with the exception if we get bad inflation
1: numbers, that could derail it. I don't think that will be the case. It doesn't feel like, you know, Shannon, Savita over at Bank of America says we're likely past, and I think this is key, we're likely past the point of peak uncertainty on inflation and rates, right? So we feel like we have a little more clarity. Even if the market may be a little ahead of itself in the times that it thinks the Fed may cut in 2024, a lot of the uncertainty seems to be on the back burner which maybe gives this runway a little more length
4: well I think the uncertainty to Scott is really what beset the market um, both on the bond side but really on the equity side in September and October it was that uncertainty about the path of inflation it was the uncertainty about what was going to happen from a rate perspective but that was really driven a lot by concerns about debt sustainability I, I you know Josh has said this on the show several times over the last couple of weeks. You know, the Fed didn't cause the rate volatility that we experienced in September and October. It was really around Treasury issuance and concerns about the sustainability of the debt situation here in the U.S. And so, with inflation continuing to tick down, I mean, Jim mentioned the ISM report. Prices paid was a little higher in this report. I don't necessarily think that that's indicative that we're going to upset the trend on inflation. Um, I guess going into next year, though, you know, you do start to think about how much from a valuation perspective, from a multiple perspective on certain sectors in the market is contingent on those rate cuts coming through in the second half of next year. You know, ideally, the scenario that everyone's sort of pricing in for or expecting is that or hoping for really is that the Fed cuts rates because they can and not because they need to. And there's still some underlying economic data that could push that narrative forward to be more of a need than a a, a can. And I think that's where, you know, you start seeing some changes in positioning in January and February, but certainly not into December, where, again, there just aren't that many more hurdles ahead of this market going through year end.
1: You're coming off the best month for bonds since the 80s as rates have, you know, all but collapsed and certainly collapsed from where they were not that, that long ago. We were talking about 5% on, on the 10-year, and here we are, as I said, 425, 426, right on the borderline. You know, Rob Seachin, Timorose, The Journal, says Fed's probably done with hikes. They're, they're reluctant to say so, obviously. Um, there is the view, though, that there's some complacency in the market. You take a look at the VIX, 12.5. That's what Chris Harvey would say over at Wells Fargo. <clears throat> What's your view here? After we put in the best month, Dow's at the highs of the day, by the way, 200 points as I look at it now. s and good for about 20. And um, we seem to be trying to accelerate here a, a little bit. What's your view?
5: The question, Scott, is what's priced in and what's expected? And from our lens, we're overextended, but we can become more overextended. A strong November does not necessarily make a, a strong December unlikely. It's all about the chase. If we learned anything, from 2023, it's that to, that anything's possible, and this has been a market that has been driven by positioning, and so so we think in December what was working is likely to continue to work, and I think if you look at yesterday, it's a window of what we think leadership could look like into 24 sectors that lag popped, namely industrials and financials and you know as we look out the next year the game's going to get harder for technology multiples are up 46 percent from their 22 lows and it's not to say to jim's point that tech has poor fundamentals and can't grow earnings but it's hard to believe that this can be uh, a a great idiosyncratic point that these earnings drivers are going to be you know, super going into next year, uh, like they were going into next year, uh, this year. And the other thing is earnings expectations have decelerated qu- uh, quite a bit, or earnings expectations have come down quite a bit. And if you looked coming out of 22 and into 23, we had very low expectations for tech and they smashed it going into next year. It's a little bit of a different setup. I think the bar's materially higher, and it's going to be tougher for these names to participate. One last thing to Steve's point, I do think you can see a broadening out though. When you look at the market x these mega cap names, it's not that expensive. The equal weighted S and P is trading it at, at 15.7 times, and so there are values out there, and that's why yesterday. Could be a preview of what we're going to see next year.
1: Well, I mean, the, the Russell's up nearly the Russell's up nearly nine percent um, in November. So that's the best month since January. If you think that you know growth growth versus value um, can both do well, that value's actually jump started. To the idea, though, Steve, where, where Rob says it's going to get harder for tech. I had a conversation with John Rogers of Ariel down in DC mm-hmm. at our CFO council, where he thinks also that mega cap's gonna, gonna come down and, and value's gonna have its moment. Brad Gerstner says au contraire to, to that view, and here's why. Listen to what he told me yesterday right here. This is not some great mystery. There's
6: a reason that tech has outperformed, right? 20 years ago, tech was about 5.5% of global GDP. Today it's 15%. I asked the panel a simple question. In 10 years, will tech be more than 15% of global GDP? I ask another question, over the next 10 years, do you expect tech earnings to grow at a faster rate than non-tech? If you believe both of those things to be
1: true, which we do in spades, then you need to be invested in technology as opposed to non-tech assets. All right, so that's Gerstner, Weiss, Hartnett over Bank of America got the largest U.S. growth stock inflow in 11 weeks, if you look at their flow show. So this is like the dance with who brung you idea. Why stray from what's worked? And because of the paradigm shift that we've had in terms of this new technology of AI, why go anywhere else other than large growth?
2: Well, first of all, as far as John Rogers and, and Brad go, they have different strategies. John Rogers is more of a value player, so that's his natural bias. So he's sitting there saying, this is going to work. Sure, but he's a realist, too. Right. I mean, he's well, not, yeah, but you know, he's, he has to be a
1: realist. He he, he he wants to talk his book, but he wants his book to work. And if it's not going to work he's, I'm sure, capable of suggesting, you know what, I think value may be in trouble for a bit. He's not saying that.
2: Well, it, it depends. I mean, we, we, don't have, we don't have to parse that, even though I brought it up. But I'd say, look, the growth remains in tech. However, rallies, no matter what, they do tend to broaden out. I don't know if this is a time that'll broaden out. Well, it it, it you has, seen, though. That's no, it has, but but not sustainably. We've seen. Well, you don't know that yet. Well, you don't. You don't. But we do know that it hasn't sustainably up to this point, right? It's been a trading rally each time. Take deer just as the example. Deer has traded periods from 370 to 410, 415, and then come back down. So is this going to be the time where you're going to see that maintain? It's up swing in terms of the share price? If you ask knows? that
1: question to Jim, Jim would probably suggest yes, even though Barclays says that small caps, for example, as, right. I, as I tell you, the Russell had its best month since January is a value trap. Look here.
3: Okay, I got it. And this is a great debate, by the way. Here's where I come down on it. Let's go to what Brad Gerstner was saying. I mean, he's very wise, right? I'm not going to disagree with him about earnings growth uh, for technology stocks. But what he left out and what I focus on is price and valuation. And I know people, when I say that, some people will say, yeah, valuation doesn't matter. Let me tell you when it does matter is the condition we're in right now, where companies outside of technology space have been out-earning, outperforming, and they're building up cash balances. Now, Scott, my internal clock is going off. when I repeat something too many times and you start to get irritated so I'm gonna do it one more time but share buybacks matter at exactly this point in time and I'm not talking the trivial oh we're just buying back 2% of a share talking about what we saw from GM today and what you will see from others cash is piling up you're seeing it in some strategic acquisitions you're seeing it in some buybacks and this is where price matters and can propel those non technology
2: stocks meaningfully higher but the question is with the GM for example is now the wrong time to start a buyback, a massive buyback, when you don't know if the economy is going to go into recession or not. They've it's got now so much. I, get, I hear you. I hear you. Right. But And that's the question. And by the way, it's not only GM's been buying back stocks. The major tech companies have all been buying. Look at Apple they've been buying for years. So you can't buy based on that story, right? And that's not showing organic growth in earnings. That's showing financial you, you, engineering.
3: No, you. Uh, I, Sorry, that's just not right. In the case of GM. Yeah, of course all right, it's right. You're, no, it's not, of course, it's of course you're wrong. GM how earnings have. Wrong that, how is it wrong that buying back stock isn't GM not earnings. GM earnings have been growing. Answer if that you, question. How I, is that I'm going to answer the first question. I'm making a point. You made ask your you point. A first question. Scott, uh, Scott, let and Jim and Steve, go. Okay. Let Jim, go ahead. If you look at the last decade, the 2010s, GM averaged six and a half billion of earnings each year. Now they're averaging 9.5 billion. And it's growing. That's what their guidance is saying. Now the reason you're Your point, okay, validly made that maybe buybacks aren't always a good thing, I counter with just the simple facts they've got too much cash. They've got tremendous amounts of cash flow. There's only so much they can do with it. And instead of just focusing on GM, what I'm saying is you can extend that to Wind Resorts. You can extend that to Cleveland Cliffs. You can extend that to so many non-technology stocks without taking away from what technology companies are doing. I'm simply saying that price matters, and where it matters is when companies build up so much cash. They can buy back shares but at you still, you still have
2: to go to where the money is going to go. And the money is not going to Cleveland Cliffs. They announced a buyback a while ago. Guess what? The stocks still substantially blow ties. GM, we don't know. They know they've got major financial commitments to EVs. EVs are sorting to atrophy a little bit. And it remains to be seen if there's going to be a major uptick of EVs to justify the costs. So it's not that easy a picture as he's painting. There's you have to really, really take it. you really have to take a leap of faith that the economy is going to is going to backstop you and work in working well, your Well let direction.
1: me ask you this, is that are you taking that much of a leap of faith at this moment? Jim was willing many, many, many months ago, facing criticism when right. he did it on multiple occasions, to take that leap many many months ago suggesting that I think the economy think is the not economy going to go not- into a, a recession is it really that much of a, re- a leap now isn't um, isn't
2: the no when he took the leap of faith with GM at 40
1: that was a big leap taking it I'm at 30 I'm not 30- talking about GM I'm talking about you talk about the economy more broadly I'm talking about the overall view he was willing to take yeah. a leap when others including you were not right. now Maybe it's who's not so right. much,
2: Maybe who was right on the positioning? The positioning was in the big cap tech stocks, not in the Cleveland Cliffs, not in the Boeing's, which just started to move. Right, but, on you, were, last but you were
1: negative on the market for the for the better part of the last eleven months. But, but
2: look, absolutely, absolutely. But take a look at my positioning. Okay, it's not just what's, how many, what percentage of your portfolio is in stocks, it's what's the beta of the stocks that you're in, how those stocks are going to perform. So if I owned one stock, if I had cash right, in 50% of my portfolio and I had 100% of my port- the rest of my portfolio, the other 50% in Microsoft, that would have been pretty good. So it's not just about how many stocks you own or if you're 100% invested, it's about how you position within that portfolio. And guess what? I also own bonds, right? I bought a lot of two years, I bought a lot of one years. They worked out pretty well, and they're still working out well, and I'm getting a, a
1: guaranteed coupon that's tax-efficient in return. Well, let's let's talk more about positioning. Brian Belsky joins us now. Um, you heard from him the other day, and he gave you his macro view, but he's actually rebalanced his book, um, and he has a number of new buys and sells. So. Brian, let's go through these. Good to see you. And thanks for coming back on to share these with our viewers. In terms of your large cap discipline value fund, you bought Boston Properties, Disney, Fifth Third, Goldman, Merck, Qualcomm, Regions, U.S. Bank Corp. I think it's very interesting that you bought a bunch of regional banks, which were the center of the storm some six months ago. But here we are. Tell me about those first, the regional bank moves that you made getting in to those
6: well thanks so much for having us and, and you're being very righteous and, and nice to steve today it's a tough day for him um you know we're using <laughs> we're funding some of this by selling netflix we bought netflix in june of, of last year as an opportunistic value call of of 2022 i'm sorry it's up 171 percent so we're funding some of that and as you know uh, we've been big bank believers for a long time And we just want to diversify out a little bit, especially given the fact that if you take a look at price correlations and valuations and yields, uh, Bank of America, Berkshire and the brokerages look very good. And JP Morgan, we're using some JP Morgan to to fund some of this. And I also think, too, uh, of our theme of everything in moderation, own a little bit of everything, it's time to start looking at some of these regional banks that we think are very
1: well positioned over the next few years. So you, aside from that, I mean, the, the buying Goldman, buying Citi, and selling J.P. Morgan, what's the thought process behind that? <laughs> well, okay, so if you take a look at, let's just talk about banks and the
6: correlations in, in, uh, and how J.P. Morgan trades relative to Bank of America in Berkshire, we're already covered there. And Citigroup, from a value perspective, Uh, The cheapest stock on a P.E. basis, almost a 5% dividend yield. I love what Jane Frazier's doing over there in terms of reorganization. You want to buy a big bank like that when they're cutting costs. They brought in great management like Andy Sieg from from Merrill Lynch and Bank of America. I really, really like that play. And I really think it's a contrarian bank. If you talk to a lot of the big institutions, they've shied from that and they've uh, invested in Jamie. And Jamie has done a wonderful job. It's up 16% this year. Citigroup's still down, or it's actually just up 2%. So, you know, you want to be able to go where I think the opportunity is going forward. And we're already covered in the big bank, in the really big money center banks, like let's call it Bank of America and Berkshire. And why'd you buy Disney? <laughs> well, uh, we've been on the network and in, uh, in, in talking about Disney. We were really early in our tactical portfolio by buying Disney. I still think Bob is gonna get this thing right. He's gonna create some sort of a scarcity proposal for Disney, he's already talked about Cutting content and cutting of the Marvel films—only one is coming out next year. So I think I like management teams. I was a little early buying Disney in my tactical portfolio, but I think in communication services, as we want to play more of a barbell with respect to the high growers like Netflix and Google, and on the other side, some of the, some of the traditional telecom stocks like AT&T and Verizon. We think Disney's in a sweet spot. So I'm I'm probably a little bit contrarian here, but I really
1: like I believe in Bob Iger. Um, Some of the other moves that I that I think are are interesting here. So you bought Qualcomm. You sold Cisco. Uh, I want you to tell us why and then I want Jimmy to to comment on that.
4: Well, I think
6: Cisco may be in uh, over its skis a little bit on on the cybersecurity side of things. They may have overpaid and I think the the stock has slipped a little bit. Cisco is a great value name within within the technology sector. I think Qualcomm's a little bit better value. Plus, what we're doing in our overall semiconductor position, Scott, for 2024, is while we're going to remain kind of core positions in Apple and Microsoft, I think with NVIDIA and AMD, what we're trying to do is play more of a barbell. So for every AMD position, we want to match it up with a Qualcomm, and for every NVIDIA position, we want to match it up with a Broadcom. That's why we added uh, Qualcomm.
1: Jimmy,
3: Yeah, Brian, help me out with something on Cisco, and I'm a representative of a team that's behind me, and one of the things they've been saying to me is the following, the tens of billions of dollars of revenue increase that you're seeing at NVIDIA in particular has to come from somewhere in technology CapEx budgets, and the worry is that it's coming at the expense of Cisco. I know they're not direct competitors, that's not what I'm saying, but that there's only a finite amount of dollars in the pie. Uh, look, Cisco's been a great stock. I, I don't want to sell it, but we're having a healthy debate in our company about whether you know whether NVIDIA is just sucking the air out of the room for everybody else.
6: Yeah, one of the things that we tried to show in the change report, guys, is that it, we, we are adding less names than we took out, meaning we took a lot of names out. And I think, um, like, for instance, in our small mid-cap portfolio, when we came out with it five years ago, we had 76 names. Now we have 56. And that talks to the conviction that we have in terms of Smith overall. We've tightened every single portfolio heading into 2024. I know a lot of people talk about stock pickers market and all that kind of stuff, but I think you have to be concentrated and you have to pick where you want to be. In the case of Cisco, you can't own everything. It's a great name, but I think we can get better value and actually better earnings growth from other areas in tech. Why would you sell Salesforce? I, again, uh, we only had a small position, and obviously a uh, no, great no week no for Salesforce. Like Why'd you sell it? <laughs> because we want to tighten up, we want to tighten our position at Microsoft. We added actually bet right back into Microsoft. Okay. I, I've taken that heat before.
1: Oh, uh, it's a very small, come on, <laughs> very small position. Well, it's a very tiny position. Still a sale, still goes in the ledger's That's couch. right, but you remember that too, I away. What about Brian. Deer, which we were talking about earlier? Um, You're reasonably bullish on the outlook, right? is your best case scenario for the market. Base case, if I remember, was 5,100. Why sell deer? It's a great question. I think
6: global growth the first half of the year is gonna be a little squishy. Uh, We went to, remember, we went to an underweight in both energy and materials. I think the more international growers within uh, industrials are gonna be hurt. Uh, That's why we added back into, let's say, a little bit more waste management, a little bit more Lockheed, I'd a little bit more defensive in industrials. Industrials had a great month in November, so we had an opportunity to sell that stock a little bit higher. So we just want to be a little bit tighter in our positions in industrials and in at least the first half of the year really focus more on domestic growers versus kind of the more diversified slash international growers.
1: Last one I'll ask you about is ExxonMobil, which you bought, why? <laughs>
6: Yeah, so you know, we, we've had Chevron uh, and, and if we're at a 3% position or less in portfolio, Scott, uh, we only want to own one stock and we're going to flip it into Exxon, uh, especially given the fact of the dividend uh, and where valuations are. You know, for all intents and purposes, from a correlation perspective, they trade very similarly. But Chevron has got certain issues, as we talked about on Monday, uh, with respect to that stock. So we're going to bet on, on our one position in energy on, on Exxon.
1: All right. Well, thanks for sharing all these with us uh, and our viewers. Many moves uh, to go through, which we like. Have a good weekend. We'll see you soon. Thanks so much. All right, that's Brian Belsky from BMO. Coming up, we're tracking more committee trades. Rob has made some new moves as well. We'll document them when we come back.
0: This episode is brought to you by AARP. Ten years from today, Lisa Schneider will trade in her office job to become the leader of a pack of dogs. As the owner of her own dog rescue, that is a second act made possible by the reskilling courses Lisa's taking now with AARP to help make sure her income lives as long as she does and she can finally run with the big dogs and the small dogs who just think they're big dogs that's why the younger you are the more you need AARP learn more at
7: aarp.org/skills what does it mean to be rich maybe it's less about reaching a magic number and more about discovering the magic in life
1: back. Uh, December beginning, how November went uh, pretty good. And Rob Siechen, you've got some moves to go through as well. So the first one is you sold Skyworks Solutions. Tell me why.
5: Yeah, Let's start at the top. We're reducing some of our economic sensitivity heading into 24, Scott, and buying some undervalued names. Uh, we're also trimming some of our tech overweight. And, and Skyworks is a name where we're doing that. The sector's up 50% year-to-date, and the revenue outlook has been muddied in a slowing economic environment from a macro standpoint.
1: Yeah, but I mean, this stock is, you know, as there, there have been concerns about uh, smartphone sales globally this stock really hasn't done anything i mean it's up 7% year to date but obviously hasn't paced with the with the market obviously hasn't paced anywhere close what you know the semiconductor index have has done or or some of these other chip names i'm just curious as to why get out of that name now
5: well it's because that headwind that you just mentioned potentially weaker demand for smartphones and consumer products and so the name hasn't worked in an environment that was pretty good for that, and so we're gonna redeploy in some other names.
1: I guess I'm su- I was suggesting that it didn't, it didn't work in a, in a year that wasn't great for, for smartphones, right? I mean, the thought now is, well, perhaps it's troughed, and because they're an Apple supplier, uh, that maybe the, the, the coast was looking more clear, I, I guess, that, than, it, than it has more recently. But at, at any rate, let's move to the next one, UPS. You sold that too, what? Again,
5: underweight. We're moving to an underweight in the industrial sector uh, because of the slowing economic environment. And they're pressured by elevated costs and declining volumes. So just a little repositioning there.
1: Abvi, you sold
5: it. Mm -hmm. We still like the pharma space. This has been a weaker performer, and we think that increased competition and peaking sales in their core businesses make uh, some of the other names a better risk-reward story.
1: Comerica. Um, You bought Comerica. You bought Bristol-Myers. Tell me why you bought Comerica, which has obviously been a tremendous disappointment from a stock performance standpoint. It's down more than 30% year-to-date.
5: Um, The trade takes us from a neutral to overweight financials. If you look at the KRE, the Regional Banking Index, it's breaking out above its 200-day, as is Comerica. So we're wading into the regional bank space at a really discounted valuation. Um, It trades at seven times next year's earnings. It has a 6.5% dividend yield. It's a larger regional, mainly focused on consumer lending in a very healthy southern state environment. In addition, they have below average exposure to commercial real estate and healthy capital levels. I know.
1: But how can you tell me that you are worried about, you know, slowing economic growth and then make the case for a regional bank and cite in part economic strength in a particular region of, of the country?
5: Uh, it's also due to the fact that yields are coming in which should impl- improve origination of their loans Scott in addition, look at the price all these decisions cannot be made in a vacuum on you know the economic environment. you have to say does the price rec- reflect the economic environment and in this case we think it does.
1: okay all right appreciate that. Let's get the headlines now with Bertha Coombs hi Bertha.
7: Hi, Scott. House Republicans said they could formally authorize the GOP's impeachment inquiry into President Biden as early as next week. House Oversight Committee Chairman James Comer said GOP leadership will determine the exact timing of the vote. Meanwhile, the White House said today the House has been probing the president and his family's business dealings since January and has failed to prove any wrongdoing. An appeals court is allowing civil lawsuits against Donald Trump over the January 6th riot at the Capitol to move forward. A panel of three judges denied the former president's request to dismiss the lawsuits that accuse him of inciting the violent mob. But the judges added that their ruling is not the final word on whether Trump may be protected from liability by presidential immunity. An Indiana judge has dismissed a state lawsuit against TikTok over child safety concerns. The lawsuit was filed in December last year and alleged that the company made false claims about the safety of user data and age-appropriate content. Similar lawsuits are still pending in Arkansas and Utah. Scott, back
1: with you. All right, Bertha. All right, thank you, Bertha Coombs. Coming up, our calls of the day, including a price target hike for one of Steve Weiss's stocks. He just bought more of it as well. So we've got a lot of moves in today's show, and we have even more coming up. We'll do it next.
0: This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you.
1: calls of the day. We're going to start with Uber today. There's the stock. Well, this thing's been on a run, right? Price target raised to 70 from 60, reiterated by BTIG. Brad Gerson on yesterday just continues to love this stock. Um, he said the competitive moat for this company is wider than it's ever been. You bought a little bit more yesterday.
2: I did. I did. Uh, and partly to uh, Partly take advantage of what I think will be rallying to the year-end. I think this will participate. But also, the fundamentals are great. I just came back from, from almost two weeks in Europe. And Uber in Paris, Uber in London, wherever you go, it is the dominant player. And guess what? Prices are going up, but they're not up so high that it removes the convenience equation of it. So, plus, management is just phenomenal. came in. He said, this is what I'm going to do. That's what he did. And then he did some more. So I'm not going to tell you it's cheap on today's numbers. Of course it's not. But where it is cheap is cheap on the growth. So I've got EBITDA that's going to grow cash flow 50% next year. I've got earnings that are growing dramatically. I've got revenue that's growing. So for me, it's sort of like a great stock to play with a unique company i mean you've got this in lyft and clearly you know they're outperforming lyft
1: all right let's do alibaba downgraded today to equal weight that's from overweight morgan stanley price target goes to 90 from 110. we bring it up in part because rob siechen you bought more baba today
5: indeed so we we increased the weight in our international quality portfolio it's an underrated grower at a reasonable price um you know, it's a bit of a turnaround story on the state of the Chinese consumers, but you know, when you're starting to see sales reaccelerate, you have a, a dominant e commerce market share, you have an un- underappreciated iCloud business, you have mid teens free cash flow yield, and it's cheap, it trades at a 30% discount. Uh, to its average, historical average, and a huge discount to its U.S. peers. And so we thought it's a good day to, uh, to, to add to the position.
1: Okay. Got a call today as well. We'll stay with you, Rob, because I got a call today on J&J, which was upgraded over at UBS. Price target goes to 180 from 167. j and up uh, having a nice day today, too. You own that.
5: I've owned it for a long time. We, owned it, we own it in our dividend portfolio. It's a small position. The company gives a decent 3% dividend yield, trades it 15 times forward, which makes it uh, more interesting, and the expectations are low. In addition, I think you could see healthcare perform in 24 and this company is refocusing on its core pharma business.
1: So, Jimmy, how about Boeing, um, which is up 23% over the last month, Initiated today a buy at Stiefel. They go 265. Stocks at 233. Yep. Uh, target raised to 300 at Baird.
3: Uh, I think these targets are very feasible
1: as long as there's no
3: operational mishaps. Um, Go back a few months, mid-August, the stock was at 243. We know what happened after that. They had a production issue on the 737 MAX with the aft bulkhead. Stock went down to 180. Now it's recovered that, and there's a lot of good things going on at Boeing, whether it's the order book, the potential for China to come back, production increasing. As long as those stars continue to stay aligned and there are no operational mishaps, I think it will continue to go higher than that 243 that we saw in August. Uh, Uh, probably before the end of the year and get to those
2: targets uh, early in 2024.
1: Weiss? Uh, Very well could
2: happen. I mean, it's just a question. Is management going to not be an obstacle to getting there? And to me, that's been the issue with the stock. So that's why I continue to stay away. I mean, it's duopoly. Duopoly hasn't worked great. And the stock's still far below where it was at its peak. Yet fundamentals, you could argue, are extremely strong, stronger than they were at the last peak for the stock
3: great buying opportunity here
2: because it will go back to that peak
3: at some point. However, this is a great debate. Look, if you're in Steve's camp and you think there's a recession coming, do not buy Boeing, okay? If you're in my camp and you don't think there's a recession coming, boy, it's a good but, but he's here.
1: But he's saying not that. In fact, exactly. it's a management issue in his mind. Which, let's be honest, you've had your own concerns about that uh, in periods of time over the last few years. Yeah. And when I say operational mishaps, you can you can substitute management for
3: that. I mean, that is execution is all on management. That's not, you know, what the economy does. Um, All that said, and I have apologized for I got really hot about Mr. Calhoun. He has a huge task ahead of him. There's a decades long culture of badness just bad behavior at Boeing I think he's doing actually a pretty good job of correcting that but it
2: takes time he was chairman of the board at one point during that decade
1: I don't want to debate that anymore anyway Delta Airlines top pick at Cowan uh, price target 49 Jimmy yeah
3: um, stock trades at a 5.8 times forward multiple This stock, as many of the stocks I was talking about earlier, this stock is generating a lot of free cash flow. That's what the analyst sees here. What are they doing with it? They're paying down debt. That's incredibly smart. Because if I'm wrong and there is a recession and maybe it's even worse than any of us expect, you want Delta to have paid down the debt that's coming due in the next two years so they can get through that recession. They've got the cash flow to do it. Uh, Stock multiple should be closer to eight. That's a 33 percent gain from here. Gets to the
1: analyst target. All right. We will take a quick break. We'll come back. Mike Santoli where this midday word is next. Are you
5: following the Halftime Report podcast? What are you waiting for? Look for us in your favorite podcasting app. Follow the Halftime Podcast now.
1: back. Senior markets commentator Mike Santoli at the desk with us for a conversation now. 424 is a 10-year.
8: Yeah, 424 is a 10-year, 4,600 pretty on the S&P. We're really getting a little bit too close not to at least try it. It seems like fewer and fewer reasons to really fight the soft landing outcome, at least in the short term. I mean, we were here in July, I keep pointing this out, not just the levels, but the full embrace of the soft landing scenario. Uh, you have gasoline prices down like 60 cents in a couple of months people aren't really talking about that as a little bit of supportive effect, and you'll probably see a pretty rapid response to the yield move in things like mortgages, right? So all that stuff is, I think people are trying to handicap uh,
1: that we're, we're basically headed for just that. We having a mic problem? Are we good? Could everybody hear what Mike was saying? Just, yes? Okay. Just wanted to check because we were having a little, yeah, we we're having a little fixing up here as you were talking. So I want to make sure our viewers um, could could hear that. And nothing really new from from Powell today. No. I mean there was a there was this momentary Pullback in the market that corrected itself reasonably quickly.
8: Some of the first headlines Because you were sitting up here as the headlines. said. for this to
1: be taken hawkish. I mean, I'm not saying that it should be. For sure. No, but there was definitely a way. And maybe it was for a minute.
8: It shows you the way the market sort of wants to work through this period and say a a pause is bullish. They're pausing through December. You know, you can't really underwrite what the market is foretelling about how many rate cuts next year. Nobody knows anything beyond three or four months. Um, But I do think that that's correct. Basically, Powell said, We're going to stay out of the way. And the market's kind Unless of. Unless we have to get back that. in the way. Yeah. Right? I mean, but we know that. Like, yeah, that's we know that. the exactly. kind of. Exactly. You know. the the, the kind of uh, the little bit of the codicil in there that says we can't leave you here without putting that on the table. But
1: uh, but most likely we're in good shape. All right. Good stuff. I'll see you closing bell. That's Mike Santoli. Up next, Paramount's potential partner. Shares are higher on reports that company could team up with Apple. We're obviously going to get Jim Labenthal's take on that. We'll do it next. Show you shares of Paramount up near 9% on a Wall Street Journal report that Apple and Paramount are discussing bundling their streaming services. Jimmy.
3: I, I caught you taking a deep breath as I take a deep breath every, every time I talk about this stock. Uh, obviously this is good news. Uh, Paramount's had a very difficult year. Um, we've talked a lot about M&A activity being the way out for them. Um, this is a hint that maybe that's going to happen. I'm not suggesting that Apple is necessarily going to buy Paramount, but this bundling of services would be very positive for them. I do want to also point out that something has changed since the last earnings report a month ago, which is that they've shown they're turning around the business. They're cutting costs. They're growing the streaming business. Next year should be a little bit better in terms of actual linear TV advertising because of the Super Bowl, because of politics. And if you look at the estimates for free cash flow for Paramount, they're rising. Uh, Just an example, fourth quarter, Scott, four months ago, it was predicted to be negative 100 million. Now it's a positive 400 million. The market is coming around to the fact that things were not as dire as they thought at Paramount, and that gives them more runway to strike an M&A deal that is for a higher price, meaningfully higher price than it
1: currently trades. Sure, at. I mean, but let's let's be honest. I mean, the stocks. Oh, it's been a I mean disaster this year. I, I hope I've been honest about that. Yeah, you you, you have. Um, by the way, Disney re- reinstates the dividend. That's good. So a day after you, you endorsed Pelts yesterday yeah. on this on this show when you were on get it, getting on the board. I see no harm in Pelts coming on the board. Well, what about reinstating the dividend now?
3: Well, it's great, and you know, going back to yesterday, we had Kevin Simpson here today, and so, uh, you asked him, why doesn't he own dividend uh, uh, Disney? The answer was, because they don't pay a dividend. I'm sure, I know Kevin, he's thinking about it right now.
1: Yeah, maybe he is, and uh, maybe he'll let us know if he's uh, taking a, a flyer there. Shan, what about Disney here reinstating the dividend?
4: Yeah, I mean, Scott, when they cut the dividend, they really cut off, you know, what had been historically a, a, a true Disney investor. This was a mainstay of a lot of dividend uh, and equity income portfolios going back prior to the pandemic. So, And I think it just it reestablishes some credibility in terms of shareholder value and the fact that they are going to remain disciplined on growing their streaming business and not cannibalizing all of that park's cash flow to do so.
1: All right, we're going to give you the setup after this break. Uh, we do have a big earnings report next week. It's Broadcom. Rob owns it. I'm sure we have a lot of opinions on it, and we'll hear them next. All right, welcome back. I want to show you the move in Broadcom um, this year, which doesn't get talked about as much as NVIDIA, um, but it's up a lot, okay? 67% year-to-date. And Rob, it reports earnings late next week. So what do we expect here?
5: You know, I think what we want to see is mid single-digit revenue and earnings growth for the quarter, data center demand growing at 20 plus percent, margins continuing to hold steady, Um, double-digit pre-cash flow growth. But most importantly, Scott, I think we're looking for guidance for data center demand for 24. Let's remember that this is a great way... Outside of NVIDIA to play AI and data center dema- demand. In addition, it's not that expensive. It trades at a thirty percent discount to a, to the tech group, and uh, you so know it's, it's a great company.
1: Right, Shan. That's how you hear people talk about this. That it's the the cheaper way of playing a real player in AI if you're just uncomfortable with the valuation of let's just say NVIDIA.
4: Yeah, I mean, and even with the, the valuation of NVIDIA, we've certainly seen that come down as they've been able to grow the earnings, right, Scott? But, you know, I think that there's going to be winners and losers in this AI trade. And I think early on, you're seeing investors gravitate to those companies that are already monetizing that. But, you know, I think as we go into 24, those second derivative companies are going to become more in focus.
1: All right. We will take a quick break. Okay. We'll come back. We'll do final trades next. Run you up to the finish on this Friday on Closing Bell, 3 o'clock Eastern with Adam Parker. Get his outlook for the year ahead. Jonathan Krinsky is going to publish a new note. He'll talk about it first on our show. And Stephanie Link will be with us as well. Hope you'll join us then. Let's do final trade. Shan, what you got?
4: Healthcare hasn't participated this year, but you can play both offense and defense, depending on how you play it from an industry perspective.
1: Okay, Robert. Scott, because you had
5: so much interest in, in this at the beginning of the show, and I want to talk about it again and again, Code America.
1: Okay, I did have a lot of interest in it. Thank you for doubling down <laughs> on that for us. Farmer Jim. Cleveland Cliffs, Uh, it's down to the wire. This is when bids are due
3: for the U.S. steel acquisition. That's what Faber
1: was reporting today, right?
3: Yeah, Faber's been all over this, and the logic really favors Cleveland Cliffs. They've got the union on their side. Uh, So I don't know if that's a week, two weeks, but that's kind of the time frame you're looking for an announcement
1: there. Okay, Mr. Weiss.
2: You, man, as I talked about on the show, Wednesday I traded pretty nicely, got lucky when a bid was announced. Stock traded down 6%, so I went bought some Wednesday, bought some more yesterday and today.
1: All right, good stuff. Have a good weekend, everybody. I'll see you on Closing Bell.
0: Completeness or accuracy and it should not be relied upon as such. To view the full halftime report disclaimer please visit cnbc.com halftime report disclaimer. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. like FedEx who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you.